Well, good morning, Lakeland. My name is Alex Smith. I'm the worship technology director here. And over the last few weeks, we've been exploring what it looks like to pursue the Christian faith. Several weeks ago, Jason Leahy helped us to see that we have a surprising faith, that we follow a Savior who defies expectations and ushers in God's kingdom in unexpected ways. Pastor Dan helped us to see that this faith is modeled on the story of the cross. We have a cruciform faith because we have a king who rules and is exalted by humbly and willingly submitting himself to the death on a cross. And last week, Marta helped us to see that this surprising cruciform faith is deeply rooted in the love of God. And today, we're going to continue by looking at how our faith is tethered to the anchor of Scripture. The Bible. This strange collection of ancient writings, most published book of all time, over five billion copies. And it's interesting, it's powerful, and honestly, it's kind of dangerous has the power to transform lives, to bring hope and salvation and reconciliation, to transform families and communities and culture. It can also be used and twisted to deceive and manipulate, to oppress, control, and to justify terrible actions. It's a dangerous book, and yet it is also the anchor of our faith. But something interesting occurred to me this, this week while I was preparing the sermon. I realized that I don't actually remember the last time I opened a Bible. I know that sounds funny. You guys are like, well, what are you doing up here then? But as a Bible student, you know, most of my time in the Bible looks more like this, with language helps and commentaries and tools and all kinds. It's fascinating to think that I engage with ancient texts on a laptop, right? Isn't that fascinating? But, you know, it wasn't all that long ago when a Bible looked more like this right? And yet, here's the strangest part. For most of us, the way we interact with this powerful, dangerous little tool <laughs> is on our phones. It's sitting in our pocket all day. Isn't that hard to imagine the power that you carry around in your pocket? It's a privilege, and it's a danger. Here at Lakeland, this is right off of our, our web page, we believe that scripture is self-attesting and being true that it requires our unreserved submission in all areas of life, the infallible word of God, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is a complete and unified witness to God's redemptive acts culminating in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the living word. The Bible, uniquely and fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, is the supreme and final authority on all matters to which it speaks. And yet this book is also written by dozens of different human authors over the course of a millennia, in three different languages and on three different continents. It's difficult, it's confusing, and it's full of some really bizarre and sometimes horrible things like rape, murder, slavery, and genocide. Many of us have heard throughout the years, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. But sometimes, honestly, guys, it's hard and confusing, and it can make us feel discouraged and bewildered. Indeed, over the years, I've known plenty of folks who have actually walked away from their faith as a result of finding some really difficult things in the Bible. So what are we to do? How do we learn to use Scripture correctly, responsibly, in a way that leads us to encountering Jesus Christ, the living Word? You see, often in churches, we do a good job of teaching from the Bible, but seldomly do we do a good job of teaching what the Bible is or how to engage with it well. So this morning, I want to suggest that we need to begin to change our paradigm or the lens by which we approach this book. 
We need to learn to read the Bible as it was intended to be read. Then, and only then, will we begin to encounter God's word as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, as an anchor for our faith. But first, to begin, let's look at some ways that often, myself included, we've been guilty of misusing scripture, like a person who uses a butter knife as a flathead screwdriver or a wrench as a hammer. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. First, the Bible is not an encyclopedia or theological reference book. You see, often we can approach it and want it to solve our problems right away. We want to know what to believe, so we just, let me find something in here really quick. We want a quick fix, instant gratification, so we can move on with our day. We hope that within a 20-minute quiet time, we'll master the text. We can often pick one verse and immediately try to figure out how it applies to us. We often form our faith around a collection of these one-line verses with little or no regard to where these passages fit into the overall story or timeline of the Bible. We can also take the Bible apart verse by verse and try to rearrange it in such a way as to force it to address topics that were not the agenda of the original authors. You see, the Bible does speak to what we are to believe, but it is not a reference book. It just doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, it's not even one book at all, as it is much more like an ancient library or collection of scrolls. Some tell ancient ancient stories, some record intimate love poems and songs, and some are actually personal letters of correspondence not addressed to us at all. Secondly, the Bible is not a moral handbook or rule book. Yes, there are plenty of rules in the Bible, but that is simply just not the point. You see, we can each tend to pick and choose what applies to us and what doesn't. We all know that we're supposed to keep the Ten Commandments, right? Well, maybe not that one about keeping the Sabbath. Not literally, anyway. We like the command in Leviticus that tells us to love thy neighbor as thyself, but not the very next verse that warns us against planting two kinds of seeds in in the same field or wearing a shirt mixed with wool and linen together. And how about 1 Corinthians, where Paul says women should keep silent in the church? How long should a man be able to grow his hair? What about divorce? What about drinking alcohol? And why can't different Christians seem to agree on which rules to follow? Make no no mistake, the Bible does give us instruction on how to live a faithful life, but it is not primarily a rule book. Third, the Bible was not primarily written for the purposes of our personal quiet times and devotions. I know, don't throw any stones yet. Let me explain what I mean. You see, throughout most of human history, Scrolls were rare and expensive. Binding them together into books would not even become a common practice until well after the time of the New Testament's writing. It's not as if everybody walked around in Bible times with a personal copy of the Old Testament under the arm. I mean, this one is miniature, and it's only five books. And remember, the printing press as, you know, the printing press itself wouldn't be invented for another 1,400 years after the time of Jesus. Most people throughout all human history have been illiterate, and even then the New Testament as we have it today wouldn't have been assembled for the first 300 years of the church. Most of the Bible was written to be read or sung in the context of community, to be memorized and repeated, passed down from generation to generation so that they could discuss its meaning together. We live in a unique time in human history where virtually everyone can access the Bible in the palm of their hand, and it is an amazing privilege, but it is not without difficulties. You see, we can often read only in isolation. As a result, we more often than not read the parts that we know or like or familiar with and kind of ignore the others. 
We can read a short passage without understanding how it fits into the whole story. And often we can assume that these, these words are written directly to us with little or no regard for who the actual human author was or who they were writing to. Consider the New Testament letters. They were real letters written by real people to real people struggling with very specific problems. When we read them, we're literally reading someone else's mail, often without knowing exactly what circumstances they were dealing with. It's like this. Do you remember when you were a kid and you listened to your mom talking on the phone? And you don't really know who she's talking to or what the other person is saying, but you're trying to guess and piece together the conversation based on your mom's words. That's exactly how our New Testament letters work. Often Paul's addressing a church and we have no idea what the people from Corinth or wherever are writing back to Paul. So how then is the Bible meant to be read? Is it so ancient and so confusing that we have no hope of understanding it at all? Absolutely not. I want to suggest to you today that we can begin to read it and understand it in its original context in a way that is both relevant and transformational for our lives today. So let's begin at looking at what the Bible is. First, the Bible is a human-divine partnership. Jesus, as a first-century Jewish rabbi, was constantly quoting from and teaching from the Hebrew scriptures, or what we refer to today as the Old Testament. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus responded by quoting the words of Moses from the Torah. He said this, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, here referring to scripture. You see, both Moses and Jesus refer to Scripture as God's words. Likewise, in 2 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy, From childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And it is our conviction this morning that they were right. We believe that when we read scriptures, we are hearing from God himself. And yet, how does this work? Did God just decide to speak through Luke one day? And so Luke went into a trance, and when Luke woke up, there before him was the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles? No, of course not. Here, listen to how God, Luke actually begins his gospel account. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the very beginning were among us. Just as they were... <laughs> from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I, too, decided after investigating everything carefully from the first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Here's the thing. Luke sat down, studied other people's accounts, and he tried to compile them together into a coherent and accurate work for somebody named Theophilus. Likewise, when Paul wrote his letter to Philemon, he didn't just hear God speaking to him and decide to write down whatever God said like a secretary taking dictation for their employer. No, Paul says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house. Do you see? This is actual correspondence from Paul to Thim to, and Timothy to several different people. The Bible was not written by mind control. The Bible's authors are not unconscious conduits like a pen or a typewriter. Some of you may actually know what a typewriter is. <laughs> Do you see? Just because they are God's words doesn't mean they aren't also deeply and truly human as well. 
The Bible is not one big game of telephone. It is both supernatural and natural. And for many of us who have ever only thought about the Bible as God's words, this can make us extremely uncomfortable. What do we do when Matthew's gospel remembers Jesus' life differently than John's gospel does? What are we to do when Luke's account of Paul's ministry differs from what Paul says in his own letters? What are we to do when the history of 1 and 2 Kings in the Old Testament differs from how things are remembered in the history of 1 and 2 Chronicles? It can make us uncomfortable, and that's okay. Remember, each author is writing from their own experiences, with, from their own time and place, with their own theological purposes, and that's okay. It is still God's word. It is still trustworthy and true. The idea of a divine text is not at odds with it being written by humans. In fact, I want to suggest to us this morning that we should expect it. You see, from the beginning, God has always partnered with humanity. That's kind of the entire story of the Bible. In Genesis, God created humanity to co-rule creation with him. God partnered with the family of Abraham and Sarah to be a blessing to the whole world. God partnered with the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai to become a kingdom of priests to the whole world. God partnered with the line of David to bring about God's messianic rule into this world, to bring about the rescue and redemption of all creation. And God himself came to dwell with humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, being both fully God and fully human. And God chose to partner with us, the church, to be his ambassadors of reconciliation to the whole world, proclaiming the good news that God is establishing his kingdom here on earth through the reign of King Jesus. Don't you see, partnering with humanity is what God does, and as a result, if God is going to choose to reveal himself to humanity, it makes total sense that he would do so through real people in their own culture, in their own historical context, using real human language and literature. That's how our loving and relational God works. And yet, when I say that God speaks through human literature, I don't want you to hear me say that the Bible is just human words. God speaks by his Holy Spirit to partner with humans to reveal himself. Consider the last words of King David recorded in 2 Samuel. King David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. Likewise, the end of the scroll of Isaiah says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release for the prisoners. And Jesus echoes these words in the Gospels. The Spirit of the Lord filled the disciples at the day of Pentecost, and they went out proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And Peter says this, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is not just human words. They are spoken in partnership with the Holy Spirit, and yet they do not stop being human words. And as such, they do not always speak with one voice. Sometimes they are more like a conversation of divinely inspired writers writing from their own perspective. Moses says in Deuteronomy, if you keep the commands of the Torah, you will be blessed. But if you do not, you will suffer. But the book of Job says, hey guys, things don't always work like that. Paul says in Ephesians, you are saved by grace through faith, not by good works. But James says, hey Works are a really important part of faith, too. Each divinely inspired author brings their own unique voice and perspective to the conversation. Here's my point, and don't miss it. The Bible is not a univocal text. It reflects the perspective of many different authors, each guided by the Holy Spirit, 
meaning we cannot just listen to one voice and ignore the others. We have to hear them and hold them together if we want to have any chance of interpreting well. So what then? Is the Bible just a set of disconnected writers, each sharing their own ideas? Not at all. The Bible, in all of its 66 books, tells a unified story. It's the story of how God is not content to let this world remain in brokenness and chaos. Rather, God intends to step in and rescue this world through a special family. And that through this family, God would one day establish his kingdom in this world through the reign of his Messiah. And that leads to our second main point this morning. The Bible is the story of the Messiah. Consider this. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. A little time later, he appeared to his other disciples and said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that is the whole Old Testament, that it must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem." Talk about the ultimate Bible study. Jesus sat them down and helped them to see that all of the Old Testament was talking about him. And while this seems to be a shocking claim, in many ways, I want to suggest that it's a fairly reasonable conclusion. You see, even many Jewish people have believed throughout the centuries that the story of the Hebrew scriptures is the story of how God has called a special people to himself and that through them God would one day return to rule over the world through the Messiah or anointed king from King David's line. They just may not believe that Jesus is that Messiah. And that claim is the central connecting theme of our Christian New Testament. It is the bold, audacious claim that Jesus is the Messiah and that through him God's kingdom reign has come crashing into this world to bring about the redemption and reconciliation of all things. From the promise to Adam and Eve that their seed would one day crush the serpent's head to the promises made to Abraham that through their seed all the nations of the world would be blessed to the promises made to King David that through his line the Messiah would come to the promised servant of Isaiah that would suffer for his people's sins, the whole Old Testament tells the story of God's coming Messiah. And yet it does this not with one single narrative, story written by one author, but by a well-kept and curated collection of ancient narratives, poems, legal documents, prophecies, and wisdom writings written and edited by dozens of different authors. The Old Testament took hundreds of years to be written, edited, and compiled before we would, it would take the final form we have today. Each new generation of Israelite scribes and priests was responsible for passing down and arranging these texts for the next generation. My point is that the Bible was not just written by a small handful of old dead guys. It was a carefully collected, written arrangement that was, was guarded and curated by an entire community of ancient Bible nerds. Don't believe me? Let's take a look at a few examples. Let's look at a section from Genesis, one of the scrolls of Moses. Let me set the story up for us real quick. You may be familiar with it already. One day God calls to Abraham and says, take your son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him there. But just as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, God provided a substitute ram. And here's what Genesis says. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. 
Who's talking here? Is it Abraham? Is it Moses? This is most likely an editor after the fact saying, just as Abraham was provided to sacrifice on the top of Mount Moriah, so too still today in Jerusalem where the temple is built on the top of Mount Moriah, God still provides. There is someone here connecting the threads for us, helping us to see how these stories fit together. Let's look at another one. The book of Deuteronomy, the last scroll in the Torah, ends this way. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all of the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform. Notice the phrase here, never since. Who's speaking? Is it Moses? He's dead. This is someone saying that in all the time since Moses' death, there has never arisen in Israel a prophet like him. This is someone helping us to connect the dots to see how the stories fit together. I wonder if one day there will be a prophet like Moses. My point is, it wasn't just the words of Moses that were inspired. All of the authors, editors, and scribes worked together, inspired by God to give us the masterful literary work that is our Bible. And that leads to our third main point this morning. The Bible is ancient wisdom and meditation literature. The Bible was designed to be read and reread, seeing patterns and themes, stories interlocking and building upon one another. Consider this. You're a Jewish person during the time of the Babylonian captivity. The nation of Babylon has come in and destroyed your cities and smashed your temple and carried your family away off into exile in Babylon. And the prophets around you are telling you it's because of Judah's sin that God has allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy you. And now you're stuck in captivity in Babylon. And in that context, you read the story of Adam and Eve, how God has created and called a special family to himself to live and work in this special temple-like garden place, to be in relationship with him. But as a result of their sin, they're exiled from the garden until sin ultimately spirals out of control, ending in the Tower of Babylon. Do you see how someone reading that story in Babylon would connect the dots? The authors of the Bible use consistent themes throughout all of the scrolls, which are meant to help us recall previous stories to see how they interconnect. Noah's flood and the destruction of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Abraham sacrificing Isaac on Mount Moriah where the future temple would be built. Key themes and words like water, seed, trees, mountains, all provide brilliant literary connections, ideas that are meant to work together to tell one unified story. As readers, we are meant to come back to these stories again and again, discovering new and exciting connections that build upon and inform other stories over and over as we read throughout our lifetimes. You see, the Bible isn't written in such a way that we can approach a passage, read it, and walk away with a complete understanding of the text. It's meant to be chewed on, meditated on, again and again throughout our lifetimes. And when we do this, something amazing begins to happen. It begins to change the way we think about and view the world around us. It develops the way we think about everything. And in the Bible, the term for this concept is called wisdom. The Bible isn't written to give us an easy reference book answer. It is not written to give us a list of rules to keep. No, it informs and shapes us in how we think about reality. And in this way, the Bible, God's word, continues to be relevant and transformative to each new generation that encounters it as we learn God's wisdom. And no passage better explains this approach to reading scripture than Psalm 1. Let me read you just a couple of verses. 
Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the paths that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law or Torah or instruction of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither and all they do, they prosper. That's it. That's the picture of how the Bible was meant to be read meditated on over and over throughout the course of our lifetime. And as we do this, we will begin to resemble fruitful trees planted by streams of water leading to eternal life. You know, it's almost as if the author of this psalm here had read the story of the Garden of Eden just once or twice. By the way, the word here, meditated in Psalm 1 in Hebrew, it comes, uh, it's the word haggah, which means to repeat or uh, over and over pondering or musing over the, the meaning of the words. And that leads us to our fourth main point this morning. The Bible is ancient Israelite or Jewish literature. This may seem so obvious that it seems silly to bring up, but in case you didn't know, the Bible was not originally written in King James English, nor was it written by modern Western post-enlightenment thinkers. Rather, the Bible was written in the ancient Near East in their own unique time and culture and language. The way they thought about and understood the world is often radically different than how we perceive things today. You see, it is all too easy for us to approach an ancient text translated into our own language and assume that we can understand everything on our own. This can be especially dangerous when we read a text and jump immediately into trying to apply it to our own lives. Now, don't get me wrong. It is critical that we learn to apply these texts to our lives, but we have to slow down ask good questions, and try to see how this passage fits into the history and the story of the Bible. Let's look into example really quickly. Psalm 137. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back for what you've done to us. Happy shall they be who seize your little ones and dash them against the rock. Amen? Is that really in the Bible? Is God really excited about infanticide? It's horrible. Okay, let's slow down and try asking some questions. Where are we at in the Bible? We're in the book of Psalms. What's that? It's a collection of poetry and emotion, the deepest cries of anguish of the human heart. When are we at in the story of the Bible? Where are we at in the timeline? Right after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jews have been slaughtered, the temple has been destroyed, and likely the psalmist has recently suffered terrible trauma. Who's speaking here? Not God. It's the psalmist, the person writing this song. This is not God giving a command. This is not God condoning an action. We are listening to the sheer unbridled rage and grief of someone who has just suffered unspeakable horrors. So what's our application? I think we're supposed to feel this person's pain and grieve with them. We're supposed to realize that God can handle our most anguished and vulnerably honest prayers. I think we're supposed to recognize that there is true evil in this world, and we ought to join with the psalmist in crying out for God to return, to bring justice to this world, to deliver the oppressed, to have compassion on the widow, the orphan, and the refugee. And that should change how we live today. Make sense? When we read the Bible, it is imperative that we connect it to the context of the ancient language, history, and culture that it was written. We have to begin to learn and study their context as we begin to ask ourselves, who wrote this? Why did they write this? And what were they intending to communicate to their original audience? 
Now let's be honest, you do not have to go out and get a PhD in ancient Near Eastern studies in order to be able to read the Bible. But we should begin to recognize that we can't just shut ourselves in a closet with our modern English translations and think that we're going to be able to understand everything on our own. We need help, we need each other. I do deeply believe that the Holy Spirit works with inside of us to illuminate God's word to us, but we were never meant to primarily read only in isolation. We need smart people that have learned history and language and culture. We need to know how Christians have read and understood these texts for the last 2,000 years. We need to read scripture as the body of Christ together. We need to begin to read in community. And that brings us to our final point for this morning. The Bible is communal literature. Look, I am not trying to be harsh on personal study time and devotions. Quiet times, devotions... They are critical components for living a faithful life of following Jesus. Remember Psalm 1? A lifetime of personally meditating on Scripture is the ideal life. But we still have to recognize that the Bible was primarily written to be read in community. Listen to how Paul ends his letter to the Colossian church. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see to it that you read also the letter from Laodicea. That's how the Bible was designed to be read. Someone bearing Paul's letter would stand up in front of the church, read the whole thing, not just a couple of verses. And then likely they would discuss it and ask questions of the person who delivered the letter. Then they would pass that letter on to another church and likewise read whatever letter that church had from them together. Or how about this? Going way back when Moses was old and about to die, the end of the Torah, he gave these final instructions to the people of Israel. Then Moses wrote down this law, Torah, and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them every seventh year in the scheduled year of remission during the festival of booths, when all Israel comes together to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, as well as the aliens residing in your towns, so that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and to observe diligently all the words of this Torah, and so that their children will have, have, who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are crossing over the Jordan to possess. Now imagine, not everybody has their own personal copy of the Bible. As a matter of fact, in the story at this point, there's only one. And how often do they get it out? Every seven years. And they call together all the men, all the women, all the children, all the foreigners, and they listen to the whole thing together in community. What would that be like? Could you imagine being a young child, listening to the words of God's instruction for the first time, side by side with an elder Israelite who had been hearing these words and speaking them their entire life? What would it do to someone's heart to be a slave hearing the words and story of the Exodus, of how God redeemed his people from slavery and bondage side by side with your slave master? Imagine being someone who had sinned against someone else in your community, hearing the Ten Commandments read side by side with the person you have wronged. How powerful that would be. That's how the Bible was meant to be read. Well, we have covered a lot of ground this morning. And I know this can all be very overwhelming. It might even feel discouraging at first. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, man, I had no idea the Bible was this much work. Who could do this? 
But hear me, we don't do it alone. We study God's word in community. There are people in this room right now who have been wrestling with the Bible for 50, 60, 70 years. We need each other, and this is not supposed to be an overnight thing. In our immediate instant gratification culture, the idea of spending your entire life doing something, frankly, seems terrifying, but it's okay. Faithfully following Jesus is a marathon, not a sprint. And slowly, by the help of the Holy Spirit, spending a lifetime meditating on God's words, we will begin to transform our lives as we begin to live out God's wisdom. And so as we close this morning, I want to leave you with a few practical next steps. Remember the Bible is God's inspired word to us. It is trustworthy and true, yet it is also deeply and profoundly human. We must read it as God's word, but we mustn't try to polish off the human fingerprints. Instead, we are beginning a journey of interacting with real ancient people who lived in their own unique time and context. We must begin to get to know them as we seek to incorporate their stories into our own. We can't just read one short passage out of context and assume we've got it. We need to hear all of the voices. We must begin to internalize the unified story of Scripture so that we know where each story fits into the overall narrative of the Bible. We must begin to read the Bible as Jesus did, as a unified story about the Messiah. We must learn to ask good questions. We must recognize that the Bible is literary art. As a result, we should be on the lookout for design patterns, structure, repeated words, and themes. And lastly, we must not forget to read the Bible in community. For you this morning, that might mean joining a small group or Bible study. You can take out your app right now, go to church center, go to groups, and join a group. There's a men's Bible study Saturday mornings. There's other small groups going on in this church also. We just started um, Discover Growth this last Tuesday, where we're journeying through a lot of this together. Matter of fact, some of the passages that I did, Adam touched this last Tuesday night. And, and sign-ups closed, you're not allowed to come. Adam, shut your ears. You can still come. It's okay. <laughs> and finally, I want us to recognize that sometimes community means more than just the people we're in the room with. And sometimes that means reading from the perspectives of saints that have come before us. And that can mean reading books. There are a lot of good Bible studies, commentaries, and online resources. If you have a smartphone, I highly recommend that you download the YouVersion Bible app. It's a great way to read a bunch of different translations, be able to access reading plans or other groups and, and devotional tools. Another great resource is fairly new. It's the Bible Project app. It's a phenomenal way to read scripture and begin to train yourself to see those themes and structures and repeated words. I'm also going to put on screen a list of online free tools. If you're not familiar with them, you can take a quick picture of them to go check out. They're free, so that's the right price. This is exciting, people. God's word has the power to transform our lives. It is the anchor that lights our, it is our anchor and it lights our path as we follow our resurrected Lord. Have you guys ever heard of the Slave Bible? It, uh, it was a collection of biblical texts printed in London in 1807. The slave Bible was used in the education and conversion of the enslaved African population in the Caribbean. But here's the thing, the slave Bible excluded 90% of the Hebrew scriptures and 50% of the New Testament. They took out huge parts of Exodus, Psalms, and Revelation, and other passages that talked about captives and slaves being set free or people being redeemed from bondage. Gone were passages like Galatians 3.28, which state, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
What was left was passages like Ephesians 6.5. Slaves, obey your masters. Now, we don't know the exact motivations of these publishers, but it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to assume that they were likely choosing to use the Bible as a weapon. You see, when we take a piece here and a piece there, we can fashion the Bible into a cruel instrument of control and oppression. But you know what I find fascinating? It sure seems like the people who compiled this book were afraid to let the enslaved African population have access to the entire story of Scripture. What could they possibly be afraid of? Could it be that they were afraid that God's word had the power to instill in its readers a dangerous hope? A hope of freedom and redemption? You see, the Bible is dangerous. It has the power to oppress and manipulate, but it also has the power to instill in its readers a dangerous hope. Because God's word has the power to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Spending our lives in community, meditating on scripture can seem a daunting task, but it is so worth it because it brings us the dangerous hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, the Bible is an anchor to our faith.